Hello and welcome to Impact, Intentionality and Innovation. My name is Kieran John, a lawyer passionate about impact and innovation. In this series, we sit down with purpose-driven leaders, impact investors and entrepreneurs that turn up the volume to 11 to tackle the world's most pressing issues. We explore what drives these positive disruptors and how these trailblazers have taken an innovative approach to intentionally make a positive impact. Today, I'm delighted to speak with Liam Black. Liam has founded and led a dozen organisations, invested millions in purpose-driven companies and is a mentor to startups and social entrepreneurs and leaders in multinational corporations. During our conversation, Liam shares insights gleaned from over four decades of being a volunteer, employee, CEO, business founder, non-executive director, executive chairman, investor, mentor and advisor. Liam also delivers his trademark practical straight to the point advice which has had a positive impact on his mentees and the readers of his fantastic new book how to lead with purpose let's get started liam welcome to impact intentionality and innovation thank you it's, it's great to be here yeah thanks liam really really appreciate you joining us today and for so writing your your fantastic new book, How to Lead with Purpose, which yeah, this has start- I love to discuss. And this has started very well, my fantastic new book. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting the plug in straight away, Liam. So the start as we mean to go yeah. on. So, um, so yeah, we're going to look to, you know, um, discuss and unpick that a bit more during the conversation. But but first, I thought it'd be quite fun if we started with some quick fire questions, sure. if that's okay yeah. with you. So um, the first question is, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, literally what gets me out of bed in the morning is Maggie, my wife's elbow, telling me to go downstairs and make her a cup of tea. Uh, but the more interesting one, I suppose, is what gets me out of bed is uh, uh, just being around interesting uh, people doing useful things. That's what mm, that's what right. keeps me going. Well, after seeing your, your LinkedIn post this morning about Princess Margaret's morning routine of <laughs> having an hour-long bath and having a vodka pick-me-up, I was wondering if that might come into it. Yeah, and also there's been... Maybe on, a, maybe on a Saturday. Yeah, there's been some age shaming on there as well. Uh, a well-known head of saying. HR came on and said hey Liam uh, the hairdressing and the makeup you may want to think about uh, yeah you know. well um if anyone listening go go over to Liam's uh, LinkedIn profile and you can see that that post for yourself um so my second question is who's your inspiration and why um as as I get older actually I'm more and more my inspiration is my grandmother uh, Julia O'Donoghue um who uh, and, and why it, she came from grinding poverty in the middle of nowhere uh, in a hole from Galway um, and managed to have seven children um, uh, put up with just unbe- unbe- unbearable poverty, one room, loads of kids, uh, and created the platform upon which uh, many of us have had a much better life. Um, and I think she ended up with a couple of houses where she supported young Irish men who were coming over working on the buildings and it's like a had a sort of second family um, and I think if she'd had a, 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 in other circumstances she could have been the CEO of Unilever she had trem- she was just amazing woman but life the Catholic Church men conspired against her so much she yeah, um, yeah so Julia O'Donoghue would my grandmother would be Fantastic. my hero well, Julia does sound, sound really inspiring. And I know we want to talk a bit about family later, so um, I'm sure we'll come back to that in, in a sec. So my third question, which myth would you like to bust? Uh, that what's gone before dictates what happens next. like it. Short and snappy as well, which is always good. Um, my next question is, how do you like to relax? 
And maybe this is your hour long bath as Princess Margaret <laughs> yeah, having, yeah. having a vodka, vodka at 10 30. Um, uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, not that. I, I, at the moment, the way I relax is with my grandkids. I have four grandchildren who are the joy of my life. Um, and I li- well, literally, is it literally happening? But I've sensed my blood pressure lowering, lowering when I'm in their presence. It's just, it's just these sort of mm-hmm. undiluted, unconditional love. And even when I'm knackered at the end of the day, having looked after them, uh, I, f- I feel really deeply at peace and relaxed. So my, my, I recommend grandkids as a stre- stress-busting <laughs> relaxation exercise for everybody. Yeah, well, um, hopefully they feel the same as well when they set the time of year as well. It's me, a mutual thing. Kieran, so. They love me. <laughs> so in the book, you talked about you know doing some stupid things in in life. So I'd be quite interested to know what's the stupidest thing you've ever done. I say professionally, the stupid thing in business, the, the stupidest thing I ever did was when I was in Liverpool running a social enterprise that um, aimed to create uh, training and jobs for long-term unemployed scousers. Um, I signed a franchise deal with uh, Ben & Jerry's, uh, with Unilever for a Ben & Jerry's franchise, having been inspired by what they call a partner shop in the States, where basically you have the franchise, you pay a little less, and you and you recruit youngsters who need a chance. It was a disaster. Um, we lost a fortune. It was a bad deal. And I kept on, I remember, I remember the excruciating board meetings of, well, it'll work, don't worry, don't worry. And it and it never did. So it was it was a stupid. It was a reasonable idea, stupidly executed. And then I was really stupid in not putting a stop to it um, uh, sooner. And then uh, thinking about this, the two other big stupid things I did in my life is I turned down the opportunity to be a monitor of the election in South Africa in 1994. Uh, I was very involved in fundraising for the ANC and anti-apartheid um, movement in my. 20s and 30s and I got the chance to go and be a monitor at this historical you know one of the greatest things of the 20th century and I can't even remember now why I turned it down something that seemed important at the time so that was stupid and then the other really stupid thing I did is I turned down tickets to go and see Miles Davis um, two years before he died thinking oh he'll be he'll he'll be back in the UK again and he never was so I, I, Mm. I, I really regret those. Does that, has that taken you forward now? Are you kind of like seizing every opportunity you get? Is that kind of approach? Uh, yeah, you take it now? sounds a bit uh, cliched, but one hundred percent, I do that one hundred percent. And I always, I always think now, it, there's always a good reason. Or I always have a good reason not to do something. If someone asks me to do something, oh, that's really interesting. I can often, and sometimes there is a really good reason. There's a board meeting, or there's something really important you have to be at. Um, but I've learned over time that actually nothing is that important, <laughs> really. Um, and um, yeah, so I do. I'm much more. Mm, let me have a think about this before I turn it down. Um, and I, 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 Tim Schmidt at the Eden Project said something once that uh, he accepts every third invitation, um, no matter what, no, no matter what it is. Now I'm not sure he does that literally, but the idea that you open yourself up to um, doing things that you normally wouldn't um, because you're too busy or you don't think it's for you, uh, I, I am more open to that. I think. Um, than I was in the past. Brilliant, really insightful. I'm sure everyone listening will, um, you know, hopefully put that into practice. No, I hope so. Can. So, so the last question is about the stupidest thing you've done. So now I'm going to flip it to what is the thing you're most grateful for? Oh, without doubt, my family, and uh, within that, uh, my wife Maggie, who I met when I was uh, 18, uh, and we've been together um, uh, ever since. And 
she is the single greatest influence on uh, my life and has made me a better man. And I'm really grateful for that, despite being... Attack it, yeah, uh, she might say the same thing about me, but uh, uh, um, she might. Uh, but I definitely am saying saying that about yeah. her. Well, perhaps your uh, follow-up book could be a joint book with joint success to happen, happy and long-lasting marriage. Yeah, we have to be that, careful about the joint things we do together. We've learned that over 40 years. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, so, yeah, but actually you speak to me at a, a t- transition time in my life, in b- both of our lives, really, where we're really thinking about how do we make the fifth decade together the best one? That's a, a question my daughter asked me when uh, we were celebrating our 40th a couple of years ago. And so we're thinking about that at the moment. And a key part to it is is doing more together that really you know is entertaining, engages us, and and hopefully we'll we'll do a little bit of good in the world. Mm, fantastic, really really inspiring as well. You talked about things you you do, and obviously you are a mentor. You mentor lots of people. I do. Have you got like a an ideal person you like to mentor, or kind of a characteristic of a mentee that you'd love to you know, love to support? Yeah, characteristics would be um, they have to be doing something interesting. You know, I get asked a lot, you know, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, yeah, I get a lot, a lot of financial services people with no disrespect to financial services people, but you know, I've got a, I do this in a bank and I'm, I want to become a move from this level to the other level. And that, that doesn't really interest me. So I have to be doing something interesting and socially or environmentally useful is number one uh, criteria. Number two criteria, or maybe joint uh, criteria. I must like them. Uh, there must be a chemistry. There must be a, a click there. Uh, I'm not a coach in the sense of, you know, I can bring a, a process to bear with anyone really. Um, I, I, I really have to like them and they have to be open to making change. Uh, I'm not going to waste my time, uh, um, you know, casting my, my pearls out there if someone's just going to look at them and then not do anything with them. So doing something useful, we like each other. There's a, there's a chemistry, there's a click and they're really open to change. Brilliant. Well, from personal perspective, I'm glad you didn't say no to lawyers. So that's always a good thing from my perspective. <laughs> oh, lawyers. I love lawyers. <laughs> love them. Especially the impact ones. <laughs> anyway, Particularly so, so far... the impact ones. Yeah. There's not many of you guys, uh, so I love you even no. more. No. Oh, I love that. Thanks, thanks Liam. Appreciate it. And um, so our final quick fire question is, did you have a nickname when growing up? And if so, what was it? I didn't, actually. No, I didn't have a nickname. People call me a lot of names, um, uh, but no, I, 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 I didn't have a nickname. I'm, I'm, I'm six foot five and was fairly aggressive in my youth, um, and so uh, people had to be very careful about giving me any mm. nicknames I didn't like. But no, I never had a, a nickname. No. And Liam is too short a name to kind of turn it into something else, you know. Mm. And I don't like being called Lee or anything like that. So uh, no, no, I didn't. I never yeah. had a nickname. But if that, if it was, it would probably have been a gorgeous, inspirate, inspirational man. <laughs> so I, can, I can call you that for the rest of this yeah. uh, conversation. You like, we yeah. shortened it to Gim. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, brilliant. So that's a really, really nice um, way for our listeners to kind of get to know you a bit more. But I'd now like to go on to, to uh, delve a bit more deeper into that. Sure. Um, so in, in the book, you talked a lot about this this cult of a superhero entrepreneur. So I quite like to start by sort of hearing what we like to call the Liam Black origin story, if we're kind of in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe the Marvel at the moment. Cinematic so um, starting that, yeah, how would you, you know, tell us a bit about your upbringing? Well, I'm the son of Irish uh, working class immigrants, uh, like a lot of sort of plastic paddies in the UK. 
my the men in my family, my grandfather, my father came to uh, the came to England uh, to London specifically in the sort of late fifties, early sixties to work on the building sites and you know navvies really uh, digging holes and building buildings all over the country. I went to a uh, Christian Brothers school, uh, which was a mixed uh, blessing. Um, I thought I wanted to become a Catholic priest, uh, and um, uh, I was going to call White Father. And the White Fathers are so cool because they're a missionary order in Africa that wear these long white robes and are imaginatively called the White Fathers. Um, and I was very involved with them. They came and did a, uh, a mission at the, at the school. We were right, you know, lots of Catholic insecure boys ripe for being recruited and um i actually had a date to go to the seminary which is the you know the, the training college for priests um i was going to go in the easter of 1980 um but and then thought how am i going to kill the time before then after i finished school um and then a friend of mine said look why don't you come and um play on our basketball team six for five uh, reference again <laughs> Um, and uh, you could get a grant in those days, Kieran. In the old days, you could go to university for nothing. Uh, so I got a grant, and I went and studied English and theology, only intending to stay until um, the end of the second term. And at the end of that term, this vision of beauty called Maggie Sheehan walked in front of me at the refectory at the college, and then uh, we got married uh, about 18 months after that. Um, she wasn't pregnant. Uh, we waited another three years for that um, and then I had a very sort of um, we went overseas and we taught I taught in British Columbia uh, with uh, native Canadians uh, we came back ended up in Liverpool uh, worked in uh, all sorts of sort of one-year contract sorts of things and then got into uh, became uh, ran crisis the homelessness charity in the north of England and that was opening up homeless shelters and uh, giving out lots of money to women's aid centres and so on. One of the organisations that we um, gave uh, some money to was a thing called the Furniture Resource Centre in Liverpool. And we began this transformation of the organisation from a, uh, a charity model where people gave you money and you do as much good as you can until the money runs out to becoming what would eventually be called a social enterprise, although we didn't use those terms in the, this was the early 90s. Um, and then I took over as the CEO of that organization uh, the year before, the year after Tony Blair got elected. And then the whole language of social entrepreneur, social enterprise and all of that began to come into sort of uh, policy uh, uh, vocabulary. Wrote a book called There's No Business Like Social Business. That book was read by Jamie Oliver. Um, uh, or he says he read it. I'm not sure he did. Someone around <laughs> him read it. And that led to me um, uh, leaving Liverpool and coming down to London and taking over the reins of 15, which was Jamie's um, restaurant brand that uh, supported uh, young apprentices. Did that for four years, uh, left that, and uh, then created my own business with two friends called Wavelength, which is remains was and remains a leadership development, executive training uh, type of um, organization and we worked with the C name a company we worked with the c-suite and we tried to bring people from the non-profit social enterprise world into the same room as senior leaders in the corporate uh, world with a across a, a cross subsidy fee model worked really really well that took me to the rural areas of bangladesh working with muhammad yunus uh to silicon valley sitting in the you know the citadels of the um, surveillance capitalists um, there. I ran Mohammed Yunus's solidarity campaign for a few years when 
that mad woman who runs his country was trying to uh, do him in. And then that bring me that brought me to my when was how old was I then? Sort of heading towards my uh, late fifties, and I thought I just in my sixties I just want to do what I want to do, um, and uh, I left that company five years ago, and since then I've been doing interesting stuff. I I've been doing mainly turnarounds actually. So I was involved with a mental health company, um, which was called the Big White Wall, and when I took it over five years ago. Uh, it's now called togetherall.com and it's helping tens of thousands of people uh, with their mental health. It's an anonymous online peer-to-peer platform, which I encourage your listeners to um, to check out. Um, I've been doing a lot more mentoring um, in, in that time. I've been doing it sort of informally and half-cocked, really, for most of my life. But I thought at this stage of my life, I'd do it a bit more systematically. And then two, just over two years ago, I got a call saying, uh, would you come in and try and resurrect the conduit, uh, which had gone into administration in Mayfair in uh, November 2020. So I've been doing that for the last um, two years, and that's been in equal parts amazing, terrifying, anxiety-inducing, um, ecstasy-inducing mix of stuff. So we have the building in Covent Garden with um, uh, – there were 700 people in the building yesterday. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, we're opening in Oslo. Um, we have a platform to invest in um, uh, startups. So, so, so I've, I've been doing that. Um, and in the meantime, um, trying to be a good dad and granddad and husband. So that's what mm-hmm. I do. And then I've, uh, I, the last couple of years, I've been struggling to get this book finished and finally got it out um, in January. So it's been a, it's been quite a ride, quite a different sorts of things. Lots of different in some ways, different sorts of business models uh, and stuff. But I suppose the, the thread that runs through it all is something about enabling others to be better, however that's defined, and helping others go further and faster, whether that's unemployed scousers or it's you know young, shiny entrepreneurs that are members of the conduit. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing. Yeah, but definitely one of those... Um... Someone who really enjoyed reading your book and is a you know it really enjoys being a member of the conduit. I think um, all that hard work is, is definitely paid off from, from my perspective. Well, so that's great to hear. That. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been so. It really has been quite two years. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm, mm. I'm glad. I'm glad it's it's uh, it's paying off for so many people. Yeah, definitely. Well, you, you talked about that theme that kind of runs through, and I was quite interested to see you mentioned about your Catholic upbringing, kind of in a personal perspective, because. Um, I was also brought up in a Catholic family. I don't have the faith, faith anymore. Are you what we call a, a, Are you like me, a recovering Catholic? I am. Yes, as uh, as as uh, as lots of my family remind me when uh, we get together over. My mum still. My, my, my mother period. still says the rosary for me. Liam, she's absolutely convinced I'm going to come back to the church. And uh, don't worry, yeah. Liam, you'll you'll be back. And I say, okay, <laughs> all right, we'll see. But I guess I guess in some way, do you kind of. Is, was, has that inspired you to do what you do now, oh, kind of making yeah, a difference, no, but maybe not in the, the there's no doubt the ecclesi- no, ecclesiastical sense? No doubt, no doubt about it, because you know, for all of the stuff in my upbringing, which you know I have shared, you know the uh, yeah, you know the, the, the misogyny, the, uh, uh, the the whole the whole thing. A lot of stuff is wrong with the Catholic Church. At the heart of it, for a young boy like me. The teachings around, you know, option for the poor, you know, you do have an obligation to leave the world a bit better than you found it. Um, uh, uh, I think there's no doubt that that has gone deep within me, you know, um, and 
I think I've also got some of the guilt left and some of the anxiety that comes with that sort of um, upbringing. Probably a class bit in there as well. But yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, my my uh, Maggie, uh, you know, I say to her that if she hadn't, you know, diverted me from the path to Rome, I could be a cardinal now. Uh, you know, she <laughs> she loves to you go, go to, for Pope, maybe. Go well, right maybe the first <laughs> Irish Pope. Um, uh, and, you know, she laughed derisively at that. But she she did say something to me which is very insightful a, a little while ago. I, ca- I came I came home and I was talking about obviously, you know, no detail. But I was talking about the sort of sorts of things I had been talking to my mentees about, and she said, "Do you know what? That sounds like you hear their confession, and it sounds like in mm. some ways you sort of become the priest that you thought you stupidly wanted to be, you know, when you were a boy." And I think there is something about that. I do find the there is something very sacred about the relationship when it really works that I have with the people that I mentor, and there is no doubt that they tell me things they tell nobody else uh, their partners their wives their bosses their investors mm. or whoever it might be and that's um that's amazing um and uh, yeah there's no doubt that you know if you kind of look at what i have done in my life there's all there is a bit of the messiah um complex going on there about trying to save the world and save other people um, and i've had to learn over the years to kind of really understand that and do it uh, not do that inappropriately um but yeah there's without a doubt uh, uh, my upbringing has uh, had a big impact mm. on me and as i get older my irishness uh, becomes more and more important to me and the roots that i come from more and more important to me and i'm actually thinking the next book's going to be about um leadership and uh, intergenerational trauma i was telling telling someone recently about the sort of you know been a lot of lot of shit in my family and uh, my mm. my grandfather and my father particularly and uh, one of my goal the two goals I've had in life is not to be my father and not to be my grandfather who were scary you know uh, occasionally violent um, distant men and I don't mm. I don't want to be like that um, but I do I was talking to someone uh, Poppy Jaman actually who who uh, sits with me on the Guardian Council at Together All. And she was talking about a thing I'd never really thought much about, you know, trans, intergenerational trauma and how that affects you and in ways that you understand and you also um, don't understand. So as, as I get older, I become more uh, conscious that, um, you know, the roots, both emotionally, psychologically, geographically, are really important to me. And I want to understand them more and how they have affected me as a man, as a father mm-hmm. uh, and a grandfather now. Mm-hmm. Well, um, obviously, you just you know just launched one book, and obviously, um, you know, do you want to put any pressure on you to write the next one? But when you, whenever you do come to write write that book, I really really interesting to read that and uh, hear a bit more. Is that why you, I know in your book one of the footnotes that jumped out to me was this talk about you know show me a male social entrepreneur and I'll show you a man of daddy issues. Is that is that something you're going to build on? In yeah, this next book, yeah, one hundred percent. I think the the why um, whatever you call them, social entrepreneurs, people who want to change the world, all of that stuff. What are the motivations of that? And uh, maybe, maybe I just it's self-selecting because I'm a bit of a mess up. I tend to attract other people that have, um, you know, uh, that kind of some brokenness in their life as well. But w- whatever the reason, the disproportionate number of men I have mentored over the years, and it's been a lot now, um, when you dig into them, they've often had problematic relationships with their dad. Uh, I, or, or dad died early or... 
you know, stepfather who came in. A lot of that going on, and um, uh, and there's you know pleasing a father, trying to be heard by an absent father. All of those things, I think, are are, are going on. And you know, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist or anything like that, but there's definitely some of that going on. Definitely some of mm. that going on. And I think it might make a really interesting book. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I also saw there's perhaps I don't know, this might be unintentional, but like a theme that runs through the book and also our conversation so far today is about about family. It seems to be a really important thing to you as you talked earlier about, you know, Maggie and your 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 grand grandmother as well and how they've shaped you and also your grandkids. So um I'd be interested to know like, you know, that moment when you became a grandfather, how did that kind of shape you to to do what you do now? Oh I yeah, honest to God, you know, I you know, don't want to become maudlin or too over sentimental, but you know, that I don't know if, did you have any kids Kieran, have you? No, no, so, not yet. Not yet. Well, that moment when you hold your first child um, is is amazing. You know, I can remember it detail mm-hmm. for my first son uh, Matthew. When you hold your first grandchild, or maybe it's me. I'm a bit of an old sentimental, you know, sentimentalist really at heart. I really felt the sort of the universe shift, and uh, uh, like, wow, you know, this is my child's child. Okay. Now, no doubt, some of that's just evolution, isn't it? And it's the it's mm. it's it's the universe saying to me, "You've done your job now, Lee. Your genes have survived into two generations. You can crawl off into the forest and become compost now." But um, yeah, no, there's something amazing about it, and the 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 love that I feel uh, for my grandchildren is very much like the love I, ha- I had for my own children, but without any of the anxiety or any of the mm. any of that a sort of purity. Um, uh, to it so yeah it, it, uh, yeah, I cried my eyes out it was just that one of the happiest days of my life and with the other three that have come similar uh, similar feelings mm. um, and also in there a sort of sense of well you better you better do a little bit to make the future better for these kids Liam while you've still got um, you know life in the life in the lungs um, so yeah an amazing and family is really really um, important mm. to me um, uh, not least because my upbringing was quite fractured and difficult. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. I think um, obviously I kind of work the space I'm in. I read lots of books about, you know, entrepreneurs. I listen to the podcasts and blogs and that kind of thing. And lots of the focus of these, this material is all about the entrepreneur themselves who are perhaps wanting to leave what you call the, the corporate life support machine and start something new. Um, but it's really a kind of a decision for, you know that needs to involve the family as well doesn't it yeah. because it's a it's a massive decision that can change their life mm. um obviously you you co-founded wavelength and i was quite interested to know how do you approach this conversation with your family if you did at all oh uh, very much so uh, and it, largely well not largely but an important element in it was how badly i left my previous my last job mm. which was a ceo in, in the jamie oliver um uh, universe and I, I miss I mishandled that, and I didn't talk enough to Maggie, and I should have got myself a, a, a mentor, uh, which I did when I uh, decided that I would leave prematurely a business relationship that I had with had had with two people for ten years, um, and so I literally wrote out what are the who are the people I need to have conversations with um, in order to uh, make sure that this exit. 
and this transition into a new phase in my life is done as well as it possibly can be. And top of that list was Maggie, um, because it would have implications about income, stability, all of those sorts of um, uh, things. And obviously my business partners, uh, some of our bigger clients. Um, yeah, no, really, really important. And again, in the mentoring work that I do, I draw a lot on obviously the experiences that I've had. And a lot of it is actually mapping out conversations that need to be had either to resolve difficulties or plan for the future and who are the key people that need to be um, engaged with and communicated with honestly to make that as good an outcome for everybody. So, yeah, 100%. And, I, and I'm, I'm having those conversations with uh, Maggie uh, right now, actually, about what, what the next phase of um, our lives together. Because we have to learn how to be old together, you know. I mean, we're I'm 62, she's a little bit older than me. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not kind of falling into the grave just yet, but we're not young and we're not going to get any younger. Uh, so we need to work out how do we make the life that's left to us as great as possible. And we can only do that if we are open and, and honest and communicate with each other. Really insightful. And I'm sure that would be really helpful to the prospective founders who are listening to this podcast right now. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that yeah, that constantly thinking, who do I need to have a conversation mm. with? You know, when you when you when you make a mess of things as well, you know, I've made so many errors and misjudgments and, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was, my formation was in the 60s and 70s. So, God, you know, the amount of stuff I need to unlearn, particularly the uh, misogyny and sexism that was just in the air, that uh, you just mm. breathed it in, you know, that's taking, taken a lot of um, unlearning um, over the years and, 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 and still. Um, but, yeah, having, understanding the impact of one's decisions on other people. I find it really annoying when, you know, I hear about this kind of, you know, superhero entrepreneur type thing. That I just jump in and everyone else can um, uh, uh, make sense of it for themselves, given the, the mess or the disruption that I've caused. I just think that's profoundly selfish and short term and mm. uh, uh, won't be successful. Yeah. That's definitely a really good, really good approach to part. You talked about, you know, mentoring people who are kind of about to take this. Yeah. I'm quite interested to know for you, is it is it really exciting to be part of that kind of life-changing decision? Or do you, you know, does it ever kind of keep you up at night because you're, you know, you're worried there's a risk that it might not be as successful <laughs> as an entrepreneur? Yeah, one of the people I talk in the book is uh, Chen Mao, who created a, a she's mm. an Oscar-winning special effects yeah. software engineer. And um, uh, has created a, a, a business to support um, vulnerable women when they're when they're breastfeeding or when, when they find it difficult to breastfeed. Mm. Called called Anya, um, and she I she took a decision to like jump off the cliff and you know um, leave her job and just go for it. And I she asked me a great question, and I said, well, at that point comes for everybody. If you want to do something significant or different in your life, the moment comes where there's that edge and you have to go. Um, and she said, I've gone. How will I know whether I'm flying or falling? You know, and you know, the glib answer is, well, you'll know you're falling if you hit the ground. <laughs> if you don't hit the ground, you're, 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 you're flying. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that moment comes. Um, and I, yeah, it is a, there's a great sense of um, responsibility and uh, ensuring that if someone I'm working with is deciding to leave a job and do something or 
exit business partners or or do whatever it might be um, that I've done all of I, all I can to make sure that when they do go a it is 100% their choice um, and uh, and they've got to that 100% choice by making sure they have thought things through but there's no doubt about it if you're setting up a company there is always an element of uncertainty always and what does interest me is what separates those who get to the edge and go I'm jumping and jump with when there might be some good reasons not to um, separates those people from the do you know what I'm not going to do this um, and neither is right nor wrong but I find that sort of cliff edge moment a, a re really interesting one but yeah it's it's uh, I do a lot of um, taking people for a walk and one of the things that I do uh, on, on on those walks sometimes is be devil's advocate uh, there was someone I worked with once who who had a very significant decision to to leave a very successful business partnership, which had broken down at a, a human level. Um, and I took that person for a walk. I said, "Let's just get out. Of, let's get out of London. Let's just go uh, for a walk." So we, I brought that person out here to the Chilterns where I live, and we went for a four-hour walk. And I did my best to present him with the absolute best argument for not uh, uh, leaving. Um, and you know it was really clear, you know, and I knew this this person really well, and so I, and the business really well, so I was able to put up a very good um, uh, counter counter argument. But it was very clear, you know, that that person had also done really thought it through. And by the time we got back to, you know, we got down the hill for a cup of tea, uh, it was very very clear what the, the what the action was, and the action was exit. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very mindful of that, Kieran, um, mm -hmm. and. Uh, never abuse it or force my opinion um, upon people. At the same time, realizing that, you know, people come to me to be mentored because they they want me um, and, they've, and they've thought about it. So they believe that what I have to say, yeah, rightly or wrongly, is worth hearing. Um, and my opinion is important, but it's important that my opinion never eclipses their own uh, 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 responsibility. I guess as well, it's kind of a theme that the entrepreneur probably has to implement when they're running a business as well. They're going to be mostly the ultimate one who takes that decision and, and takes that leap. So I guess it's kind of setting that practice in from, from day one, isn't it? But um, taking to the point before before you take that leap, I think in the book you talked about a reason why this might you know, might be a catalyst is your your platform yeah. and your personal purpose is not aligned. Yeah. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about more about that yeah the, the uh, i heard that purpose platform um formulation from a, a man called um uh, uh aravind Srinivasan, who is the uh, a doctor an eye doctor at the aravind eye hospital company in india which is an astonishing organization i encourage all of your listeners to check it out aravind a-r-a-v-i-n-d and he gave a talk at Wavelength uh, on this. And he talked that you know, you, we all have a platform that we're on. And that platform is made up of the place where we work, the resources that we have, um, it, it, all, all of that that creates the ground upon which we stand, uh, uh, the ground, the platform upon which we exercise our purpose. Um, and I think happiness resides in those two things being aligned. When your purpose and your platform are right in sync i think happiness flow you know the, the best impact we can have is there once they start to get out of alignment uh, i think that's when uh, problems happen and the people that i 
mentor often come to me consciously and unconsciously at a time when they sense that those things are no longer in sync. And then fundamentally, the conversation is about, is the platform that you're currently on the right place for you to continue pursuing that purpose? Sometimes it is, and it just needs to be changed. I'll give an example of the mm. book of a, 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 a guy I mentored who worked in a multinational and was very frustrated that, um, and he'd been there since he was a, a graduated. So he'd been there like 20 years or something. And um, he had come in as a engineer with his hands getting dirty. And he was really, uh, and he was on, he was a, had now a really big job with thousands of people, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of budget. Um, and he um, uh, was unhappy. And, and he said, I've got to leave because I'm unhappy. In the end, I encouraged him to go to the board and say, I'm unhappy and I'm thinking of leaving. And they were like, no, 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 please don't. And then they said, what do you want? And he, went on, I said, he said, I want to smell oil again. I want to be back in the action. Um, and so they offered him another role and he stayed in the company for another seven years. So it doesn't always have to be that you leave, mm. that you can re-engineer the platform that you're on. Um, uh, but that is... Uh, often at the root of uh, the mentoring um, uh, that I do. And I try and sort of uh, discern that in the first session that we have with people. What, what is really going on here? Because often the issue that people present is just a symptom. You know, it's not actually fundamentally what's um, going on. And once we've sort of identified, you know, what that core issue is, we can then start you know, talking about how we address it and, they can be happier and more impactful or whatever it is they want to yeah. be. Do you ever, on focusing on the, on the purpose side a bit more, do you ever have in-depth discussions with the people you're mentoring, the kind of you know purpose-driven people you're speaking to about where that's coming from? Oh, yeah. I think based on kind of the, the people I speak to sometimes, some of them perhaps are made, maybe driven in like two separate camps, maybe. So maybe one side you might have people who are driven by an anger at some injustice or inequality in society, whereas... On the flip side, others might be coming at it from a, a positive, come on, let's change the world, let's make a difference kind of approach. Do you think that do you think that kind of distinction is, is true and accurate or is, I think it, that, is it more nuanced? I think, I, I think it's not as binary as that. I think there's all sorts of different reasons. Mm. Um, you know, the why question, you know, I talk about a lot in the book. It's the first question I ask someone, you know, why do you want to um, change the world? You know, why, why do you think you, it's you who should change the world? Maybe you're going to make things worse, actually. Um, so, but there are many there are many motivations that you, you've you've put your finger on a couple of the main ones. So, anger, a drivenness about uh, changing um, uh, uh, inequality or injustice in the world because it's been experienced personally or by one's family uh, or, or people uh, people around you. That's definitely one. Uh, ideology, religion. Uh, I've mentored quite a few people whose Christian faith is what motivates their um, uh, their change in the world. Uh, some people, it's to disp- you know, to carry on work that their parents have done, or it's they want to um, very uh, deliberately go against what their parents um, did. So there are many, many motivations, um, and I think understanding what those motivations are is absolutely critical. Because if you don't, as soon as you uh, encounter resistance, opposition, hostility, which you will, uh, you'll fall over. Um, because you don't understand what it is that's that's driving, and then the other thing that I think certainly again this comes with age is um, understanding that your 
what you think is what's driving you at a particular time in your life. When you're older and you look back, you think, oh, no, no, it wasn't that. It was, it was something else. Um, so I don't think we all, you know, we're a, we're a funny thing, aren't we, human beings? We are, a, mm-hmm. we're, a, we are an interesting species. Um, so I, I guess I'm saying as far as it's possible to understand what, it, what motivates us without sort of um, paralyzing ourselves by disappearing up our ass with um, too much thinking about it, I think it is really important to understand that, but also to revisit mm-hmm. it. So if you'd asked me in my 20s, Kieran, you know, why are you, doing, why are you going on all these anti-racist marches, Liam, and being a bit of a zealot and all of these sorts of things, I would have given you an answer that, you know, involved, you know, um, Saul Alinsky and Noam Chomsky and, uh, you know, Parnell and a whole mixture of people, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez and all these sorts of people. And there's no doubt that was driving me. But looking back and rereading my journals, it is so clear that what I was doing was seeking the approval of my um, the father who abandoned me. It's just like jumps. It just jumps right out. But in the in the moment, you can't see that. It's only looking back. And I think one of the benefits of mental cambering is to help with that reflection. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in, particularly if you're involved in a complicated social change program. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, all these things are complicated. Aren't they? There's no easy answers. There's no quick um, end to it. It's a lifetime's work often. Um, that it's easy to get the you know woods for the trees syndrome and not really see what's going on. I think a mentor can really help ask the right questions about well, why are you doing this? Do you still want to be doing this? Um, do you still want to be doing it with these people on this platform? And if you don't, what what might it look like? Um, do you need to refresh that why as part of your moving on to the next phase of your mission and, and of your life? But that's one of the absolute joys of mentoring is just being allowed into people's lives um, and thinking and struggle and emotion about trying to balance, you know, their physical health, their mental health, their psychological health, their relationships, their work. All of that. It's it's as I said earlier. It's it feels sacred, um, and you know I'm pleased I can be of use to people. But understanding what it is that is driving us and returning to that regularly, I think, is critical. Definitely, it is. I guess in the case some people, you're on the treadmill, aren't you? You're going ahead. You're attack. You know, attacking next social issues, environmental issues. Taking that step back, either doing it through mentoring, not take, so take the like, step. You know step away from it, have a think about it, and then speak to a mentor or someone else in your life that can kind of give you that, that perspective that, you know, this is why I'm, I'm doing this, this is what, this is why I'm leading this purposeful business. But obviously, I don't know if this is, this, you, you, you agree with this, but do you think that, you know, you've obviously mentored people who are working in purposeful businesses and people who are perhaps not working in wholly purposeful business. Do you think, do you think there's more of a burden on a leader who's running a purposeful business compared to a like a purely profit generating mm. business um and if if that, if that's so is you know is that is that always going to be inherent in running an impact business or you know, what that's can they do to kind of question. manage that i think it can be a burden if it's not thought about and uh you know one doesn't get together the what's required in order to stop it being a burden so i tell the story in uh, uh the book of uh uh michelle uh, who ran Liberty in Brixton and written a great book actually called Own Your Awkward about her nervous breakdown. And she, you know, she was saying that the um, the pressure of not wanting to let young people down and that being a sort of almost a global thing that she wanted to save all of the young people in the world 
does add another level of um, pressure to running a business. So I think, you know, I don't want to overstate it because running any sort of organisation is really bloody hard. Mm. But I think if you, you know, yeah, take the conduit, you know, we've got to recruit loads of members. We've got to keep a building um, going. We've got to recruit lots of chefs and waiters and runners and all that sort of thing, just like Soho House. And that's really hard. Mm. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, but, but then on top of that, we make another promise, which is, you know, by by coming through our doors and joining our community, your ability to affect the change in the world that you want will be enhanced. That's another level of that impact, you know, is just another level of opportunity, excitement, occasionally burden, challenge um, that's there. So, so yes, I think it, it can be. Um, and I think that uh, it also bring, if you're dealing with, you know, domestic violence or uh, refugees or, um, young homeless people you're 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 deep in human suffering and um, uh, pain and so you have all of that and then also you've got to manage the cash flow and pay people and raise money and fix the uh you know the toilets when they break down you know all that is all of that and that that all together you can get lost in that and you and it can really feel like a burden and get on top of you um, and uh, that really needs to be avoided because, you know, no one wants their organisation to go bust, but really no one wants their organisation, if they're supporting homeless people, uh, to go bust because it isn't just money being lost or reputation being lost, it's, uh, it's potentially lives um, uh, uh, um, at, at stake. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I uh, mentor a woman who's involved in a healthcare business, which is dealing with some incredibly vulnerable young people and i can see in that person that you know that weighs very heavily because it's a heavy burden if you take that if you take that level of pain and other people into your into your life and into your organization it does take another level of organization mental capacity self-awareness in order to make sure that it doesn't become a burden that gets in the way of running a good organization. So I think, mm. I think, and I, I think, you know, I'm going to write lots of books, aren't I? I think there's a really good book to be written <laughs> there about the, what it does to you if you are the leader of an organization that has all of these different bottom lines to address. Interesting. And obviously, um, yeah, again, another really interesting book to read in the future. Hopefully. But the, the one, <laughs> yeah. one of the things that jumped, jumped out, in the book you have, yeah. one of the books you have written already. The actual well, book I have written, yeah, that one. The actual book you have written. Um, so I think, I don't know, you talked earlier about culture, you know, in the 50s and 60s, sort of misogyny and other kind of um, practices which are totally unacceptable nowadays. Yeah. Do you think we're kind of now in a, a culture or society where a leader can kind of talk to their team or investors or other stakeholders about, you know, if they're not not feeling 100% mentally? Is, are we now in a place where they can do that, do you think? No. Uh... no? Okay. <laughs> um uh, well, I, it, I mean that's a bit of a blunt answer. I think it depends. Mm. I think it depends, and I, I am I am skeptical of the from a from a senior leader perspective the bring your whole self to work thing, be your authentic self at work. Well, you know, is that what the people you lead want? You know, um, they don't want to hear about all my angst and all of that. Um, now. 
there's a thin bar, there's a thin line, isn't there, between um, not you know, uh, showing off with what you know. Look, look how vulnerable and human I'm going to be, boys and girls, to authentically enabling people in the organisation to talk about uh, where they're at, particularly with their with their mental health. Um, so, and I, I don't think I've I've conquered that. I try to be in the leadership roles I have. I try to be honest. But I'm not 100% honest. Why should I, you know, why should I burden people with all, you know, some of the other stuff I'm struggling with um, in my uh, in my life, psychological, how, however that might be. Um, so I think it's tricky. Um, I, I think, well, it, it, I, I think this because I guess this is the way I behave, that, you know, what the people I lead want from me is not sort of psychodrama sessions about, you know, my my struggles with my what existential struggles they want clarity they want they want honesty about the stuff that's relevant to their roles they want there to be a culture of respect all of those sorts of things rather than you know let's all go to work and talk about um uh, uh, how, how anxious we're all feeling I, I think if you if you i think the other thing in leadership is people project a lot onto you um oh, i mean again i've experienced this a, a, a lot in my time and um it's easy, it's, it would be perilously easy for me, to, and I have done, I have done this. I have moments at times in Liverpool, and I thought, right, I'm going to be really honest about how I'm feeling. And everyone, I remember one of the drivers going, "We don't want to hear that, Liam. It makes us feel insecure if you tell us you're not sleeping at night and you're anxious, because we're thinking, shit, what's going on? Are we all going to lose our jobs? So I think there's a there's a fine balancing act to be done there. Mm. Uh, I, I think the stigma against talking about mental health generally is still very strong. Um, I interviewed a guy in the book who he said he'd burn my house down if I revealed who he was. Um, and that's an indication that it's hard to speak about these mm. things publicly. Yeah. He worked for a very, very well-known uh, media business, very senior. And he said, we've got the most amazing um, uh, employee uh, assistance program. We have on tap counselors uh, and so on. But if I, as one of the senior leaders here, was to share with my colleagues that I have mental health struggles and I probably drink a bit too much and it's getting me down, my career's over. And so I think there's a lot of that around. And add to that the reluctance of men, particularly middle-aged men, to talk about how they're really feeling to anybody, let alone board members and senior uh, Mm. um, exec colleagues. I think we have a long, long way to go. But what... Mm-hmm. that mix of honesty authenticity leadership clarity what that mix is that is right for a leader will vary from place to place without a doubt but also it's something that i have struggled with but i would be wary of standing in front of um, <clears throat> excuse me any of the communities that i'm involved in leading and just give them 100 percent where i'm at <laughs> mm, yeah interesting interesting reflection i guess that's where a role of a mentor comes in. Sometimes you can have those open, honest questions, and you can kind of guide you through it. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm conscious of your, your time, Liam. Well, can I go to our, our final sure. question today with bringing things back, being, bringing things back full circle to family, but also in the interplay of being a mentor. Yeah. So I'd be quite interested to know if you know theoretically, if your family member came to you and said, Liam, I've got this problem, either personal life, work life, whatever. 
do you kind of stay in dad's granddad mode or, yeah. or husband mode or do you kind of naturally slip into this mental well, the, mental mode yeah. if you can distinguish the two I don't yeah, know. Well, there is a bit of a gray area isn't there but you know um the um i have I, i'm blessed with I, have, I i think you might have to ask them i have a great relationship with my three adult children um and they turn to me quite a bit for advice about work or this that and the other but it's a very different relationship to the one that I have with uh, uh, mentors. I mean, you know, I, I'm their dad, you know, uh, um, and um, I suspect they, well, they know all about me, <laughs> you know, and, and my weaknesses and failures and regrets about stuff I wish I'd done differently as a dad. And, you, you, you know, my oldest is nearly 40 now. And, um, uh, you know, that's 40 years we've been together. And that's a long time. And um, uh, no, so uh, no, it's a different role. It's a completely different role. And they would be mm. all sorts of things that they would never dream of uh, yeah. talking to me about in the way that my mentors. And that's part of the value of a mentor, someone who's not mm. psychologically bought into everything in your life. You know, uh, I see some people, you know, I, I, I see them one, you know, two hours every two months um occasional phone calls in between um uh, so it's different you know there isn't that level of mm. intimacy or that level of uh enmeshedness that you have with your own children which i think would uh, uh, uh get in the way of a a mentoring relationship mm. now i'm there i'm their dad and their granddad i'm not there yeah. I'm, I'm i'm not their mentor that makes sense well I wish we could talk for a bit longer today, Liam, because there's so much other things to talk about. Obviously, maybe when your next book comes out, we have another <laughs> well, kind of conversation. I think I've committed myself to about leaders, six, but... haven't I? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, as, yeah, firstly, thank a you. A pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. They're really, really astute, interesting questions. I, I appreciate you, the preparation you've done there. That's, uh, you know, I, I really do appreciate it. And I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's my pleasure. Really, real pleasure to read, um, you know, read your book and also do a bit of uh trawling around your LinkedIn to see what other things you've been doing as well so thanks for thanks for that and uh, I think a comment earlier talks about you know messing up in your life and based on what you told us today and the kind of wisdom and and um advice you shared with our listeners I, I think that's totally not not the case at all so um um that imposter syndrome perhaps is, is coming back but um but th thank you again for, for your time really appreciate it um before we sign off is there anything else you'd like to spotlight or or mention no, not really you know join the conduit um and uh <laughs> uh, yeah, buy the book. The book was written not particularly to inspire. I think inspiration only gets you so far. It's in written to be useful. So there's a lot of, I hope, useful advice in there. A lot of it through the eyes of the people that I've mentored, as well as some of my own um, uh, experience. And, 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 and anyone listening to this who's involved in trying to work out how they uh, align their purpose with their platform and live the life that they want and make the, the difference in the world that they want i wish you all the best fantastic well um thanks everyone to listening as well um as liam said you can purchase his book how to leave a purpose online or hopefully at a local independent bookshop if there's, there's one near you lucky enough to have one near you um if you'd like to hear from other impact driven leaders investors and entrepreneurs subscribe to our feed to be notified of future conversations thanks again and see you next time Thank you.